We continue the Shi'ur in Navi, prophets. The Navi called Shoftim, leaders or judges of the Jews. After the passing of Gidon, the next leader that rose up was Avimelech, as we said, and then Tola ben Pua was in the tribe of Yisachar. He led the Jews for a period of 23 years, during which time there was peace. The Jews served Hashem properly. They obeyed the mitzvahs of Hashem, and they received the protection of the spirit of Hashem. When he passed away, the Jews turned away from Hashem again. Again, they suffered. The next leader was Yoir Hagil Odi. Now, about him, there is very little said in the Navi. Yet this one sentence bears explanation. Just for a few minutes till we go on to the next important leader. You know, he tells us, Navi, that means the Torah, says that Yor Hagil Odi led the Jews, ruled for a period of 22 years. He had 30 sons, and these sons owned, possessed one city each. And Yor Hagil Odi called these cities Chavos Yoir. Chavos means villages or small cities named after himself, Chavos Yoir. Why did he call him exactly Chavos Yoir? Gemara says because he possessed the same name as a very famous person who lived in the time of Moshe Rabbeinu. His name was Yoir ben Menashe. In the Chumash, we find that Yoir ben Menashe had no children, and he felt very sad about this. Having no children means that his name would be erased. So he built cities, and he called these cities Chavos Yoir as a monument, memory of himself. There'd be some important thing remaining about himself. Now this Yoir Hagilodi, because he possessed the same name, was from the same tribe, decided to call these cities by the same name, Chavos Yoir. Many years ago, when I was much younger, I once wondered about that point. Why does the Chumash itself, Chumash is so priceless and an item, Every single letter of the Torah requires so much explanation and so much depth. Why does the Torah tell us that there was a man, Yoyer ben who built cities and called them Chavos Yoyer? This takes up space in the Chumash, when space is so valuable. There must be a vital lesson there. And what appears to be the true interpretation is, the Yonah says that sometimes a tzaddik, a person is very righteous, and yet... The one thing he desires most in life, he never gets, and that is children. Because a person's main purpose in life is to propagate the breed, to bring up children who will continue to serve Hashem. The greatest nachas you can have is children who are religious, who go on the righteous path, will bring honor to the family name. And if this nachas is an item, which a tzaddik is deprived, he feels very sadly. Therefore, the Gemara tells us, the Yerushalmi says, that the toldos, toldos means the generations of the offspring of tzaddikim. What are the true toldos of tzaddikim? Not just children, but their birth, they give birth to, most important, important moral lessons for the sake of their children and the following generations. And these Tolus of Tzaddikim, the Gemara says, are Torah or Mitzvos. Torah and Maisim Tov. Hein Hein Zichronon. These are in memory of these Tzaddikim. They leave these as a memento of themselves for all future generations. Now here the Torah teaches us that Yo'ir Ben 
was a very great tzaddik. He had no children, but he did leave over something as a memory to himself, a lesson for all future tzaddikim. He left over Chavos Yoyer. This stands for his name. Chavos Yoyer, though, is Bigimatria 635, which means the Zichron of tzaddikim is Torah and mitzvahs. The Torah is always called the 22 letters of the Aleph Beis. Mitzvahs are Tariyak, 613 mitzvahs of the Torah. 22 and 613 total the words or 635. This is what Yoyer Menashe meant when he called these cities Chavos Yoyer, to show that though he has no children, he leaves behind him for the sake of others the Torah and mitzvahs that he taught during his lifetime. Now here too, Yoyer Hagelodi, who led the Jews for 22 years, he was not as great a tzaddik as Yoyer Menashe, but he showed too that he strived to fulfill the 613 mitzvahs for a period of 22 years. And therefore, he too called these cities Chavos Yoyer, the Gimatria, numerically, it amounts to 635, a total of 22 and 613. After his passing, there was a period of 18 years when the Jews had no leader. During eight, these 18 years, the Jews sank to very low depths. They turned to all the worst type of idols, idol worship. In those days, of course, question the Gemara asks, why go to idols? What do you gain? What do you benefit from them? The answer is that there is a Yitzhahara, a Satan, an evil angel that penetrates the heart of a Jew and instills in him an evil inclination, a desire for bad. Uh, we know that there are certain things that can only bring downfall to a person, crime, money that's the root of evil, the desire for too much money, money that's illegal, and yet good people fall into this evil desire, this temptation, and they become ruined. Why? Because this Satan, this Yitzhahara, is so powerful that he preys on those who are weak, and they fall victim to him. In those days, idol worship was a temptation. We don't understand it now because that temptation has been erased. Temptation was so great that even the greatest people, the most religious people, the most loyal and devoted servants of Hashem, also fell victim to this temptation. And as the great ones fall, the smaller ones follow. And that's how the Jews fell under this temptation, this evil of idol worship, thereby causing Hashem to forsake them. And so, naturally, the enemies of the Jews became much more powerful. In this case, the, the peoples of Ammon, the Philistines, the Ammonites, they became powerful. They began to torment the Jews. The Jews suffered to an impossible degree. To such extent that after these years, the Jews turned back to Hashem, this time screaming for help, screaming and vowing that they'd never leave Hashem again. They cried, they prayed, they fasted, until Hashem spoke to them, of course, through a prophet. Hashem said to them, if you need help, assistance against your enemies, don't come to me. You have idols which you worship, go pray to them. You've been with them so long. You served them, you worship them. If you're in trouble, turn to them and let them help you. 
The Jews cried further and said, we don't want the idols, we want only you. And Hashem replied, I refuse to help you this time. I gave you enough opportunities. This time, you're on your own. Not to help you anymore. This is the word of Hashem. Hashem said, no more, that's it. Now the Jews were wise. One thing they possessed was wisdom. They knew the all-important blessing. The blessing that Rabbi Nezal teaches so many times that the, the destruction of a Jew comes about only because of Yish, because of giving up hope. If a Jew finds a sword at his throat that's about to slay him, at that last second, King David said, do not despair. You still have prayer, and this can save you. So now, even when Hashem himself told the Jews, I will help you no more, they continued to cry to Hashem, and they said, punish us, do what you please, but don't leave us, we still want you. And because of the insistence of the Jews, Hashem concurred. Kaviyochol, Hashem gave in. Battle between the Jews and Hashem, and the Jews were victorious. Kaviyochol, Hashem was defeated in this battle. This is why most of the chapters in Tehillim begin with the words, Lamanat Sayach. Lamanat Sayach Ladavid, Mizmor. Lamanat Sayach, Mizmor Ladavid. Lamanat Sayach means, I pray to Hashem. Lamanat Sayach, to Hashem, who is happy when he is defeated. Hashem wants the Jews to attack him with prayers. Attack until the anger of heaven is abated, until the harsh decrees in heaven are wiped out. A decree in heaven is decided upon by Hashem. Hashem issues a decree, an order, to hurt his people, and the Jews come with their prayers to attack, to rescind this order, which means that Hashem, Kaviyachal, must retreat, must give in, must surrender. And this is what Hashem enjoys more than anything else. But he's defeated by this type of attack by the Jews. So at no time should a Jew ever feel that all hope is gone. Hasmashon, a Jew is defeated only when he gives up hope. As long as his hope is there, as long as he continues to battle for finding favor in the eyes of Hashem, he will be victorious. And that's how Hashem turned back to the Jews to assist them, to help them, and to bring them a new leader. The next story deals with this leader, the Shofet, the judge of the Jews. In this case, his name was Yiftach. Yiftach was an unusual person. His father had many children, different wives, legal wives who he had married. These were legal children. He also had one illegal affair with a Zona, an illicit woman. She gave birth to Yiftach. Yiftach was the son of a woman of ill repute, but also the son of a Jew, a good father. Of course, the woman, too, was Jewish, naturally, so he was still a Jew. But when he came to inheriting his father's fortune, his <coughs> brothers drove him out of the home. They said, you're not one of us. You're not similar to us. You don't belong here. He was driven out, and he joined up with the wrong type of crowd. But one thing he possessed was courage and strength. He was very learned in the art of battle, 
He was a good leader in a fight. And this the Jews realized. It came to a threat by Ammon. For all out war, the Jews were weak. Materially, they had no chance to stand battle against the vast armies of Ammon. They needed a leader. So they came together with Yiftach's brothers to Yiftach and they said, you're the only fighter we have. We ask you to take the lead in this battle, become our general in this war. Yiftach said, you ask me now, you're desperate. And you tell me that I will be your leader if what? If we win the battle. Well, I refuse to accept such terms. If you promise me right now, I'll be your leader. I'll be your ruler, the ruler of all the Jews. Whether we win or lose the next battle, then I'll accept the leadership of this war. The Jews, of course, were desperate. They were forced to agree to these terms. So Yiftach became a leader. There was no way out of this war. And, of course, the Jews were outnumbered by an extreme degree. How to go into war against a nation that's got such vast armies, such mighty military power, was a problem. But Yiftoch possessed that one ingredient that was necessary, an unlimited courage. So he sent a message to the king of Ammon, a message that, would, that showed the, the spirit, a spirit that we would hope very much the Israelis today would emulate the leaders of Israel. The country of Ammon declared war on the Jews because they wanted a certain percentage of Israel territory. And for this, Yiftach sent a reply to the king of Ammon. His words were, what do you, king of Ammon, want from us? You want land that you claim was originally yours. Well, let me explain why this land is not yours. We, the Jews, many years ago, over 300 years ago, left Egypt. We were told by Hashem that on our route to Eretz Israel, we might have to do battle against some nations, but two nations we were not to touch. No matter how they'd provoke us, we were not to go to war against them. These two nations were Ammon, your nation, and Moab. And why so? Because Hashem said, these two nations are going to produce two people who are very important in Jewish history. Two people, two women. One, the nation of Moab will produce Rus. Rus, who was the daughter of the king of Moab, who would eventually convert, marry Boaz, and would give birth to the great-grandfather of King David, meaning who would come forth Mashiach. Because this one individual, Rus, was so important, therefore the Jews could not touch Moab at all. The second Ammon had come forth from Ammon, a woman called Naamor, and she'd be the wife of Shlomo HaMelech, King Solomon. Because of that one woman too, Ammon may not be touched. And so we lived up to that command of Hashem. We wanted to take a shortcut to reach Eretz Israel quickly, we asked permission from Ammon and Moab to go to their lands. They refused us, and instead of doing battle, we retreated. We took the long road 
to Israel. At the same time, we came to Sichon. Sichon, Malachah Amori, Sichon was much more powerful than Amon Amor. Sichon was the brother of Og, Melech These two brothers were supernatural in size. They were the tallest giants that ever lived, taller than the tallest mountain on earth. These two brothers were also old, and the older they became, the stronger they became. These two brothers lived at a time of the flood with Noah, and when the waters rose above the tallest mountain on earth, these two brothers stood in the water next to the ark, and their heads were above the water. And they were so powerful that they needed no assistance in war. One alone could easily eradicate a complete army. Still, we went into battle against Sichon, the king of Amori, and Hashem told Moshe Rabbeinu, who led this battle, do not fear him because he is yours. You'll defeat him very easily. We defeated Sichon. We took the land from Sichon, that we won in battle, and deservedly, it became ours. Now it happened that prior to this battle, Sichon had declared war against Ammon and Moab. In this war, he had won some territory from Ammon and Moab. When we defeated Sichon, we took all the lands of Sichon, including this territory which was now Sichon's. So we did not take this land from you. We took it from Sichon. If you had complaints, if you wanted this land, you should have gone to Sichon to get it back. So we won this land fairly. Now, two things. You have the idols you worship. Kamosh, your idol. Whatever Kamosh, your idol, granted you, whatever land he blessed you with, that's yours. Whatever land Lahavdil Hashem blessed us with, as, for example, the land of Sichon, including some of your territory, that's ours. Our Hashem gave us this land, it's ours. Whatever you have is yours. But what we have now, we will not surrender even one inch of that land. There is no such thing as giving up territories. This territory Yiftach was speaking about was Transjordan. Imagine battling so hard to hold on to a piece of Transjordan Imagine how hard he would battle for a piece of Israel. Imagine that being so outnumbered by the armies of Ammon and Moab now, being so comparatively weak and helpless, and still there was no thought whatsoever of surrendering any territory that belonged to the Israeli people. And when a person, a leader of the Jews, keeps that thought in mind, he should know that by being adamant on that point, he is certain to have the help of Hashem. Yomara tells of many kings of the Jews who held on to Jewish land, Jewish territory, and for this they were successful. In this case now, because of Yiftach's statement, they went out to battle now, and he was fated to win. He had to win with such a spirit and by fulfilling the desire of Hashem. Jews are Hashem's people, Eretz Yisrael is Hashem's land, Hashem gave that land to the Jews not to be given up at any time for any reason whatsoever. Yiftach girded himself a battle, he mobilized all the Jewish soldiers he could get, 
But as he headed for battle, seeing that he was so vastly outnumbered, he invoked the assistance of Hashem. He decided to offer something in exchange for this assistance. So he pronounced a vow, a promise to Hashem, in which he said, all I can offer as thanks is a korban, a sacrifice. A korban toda, a sacrifice of thanks to Hashem. Now, if Hashem, you will help me, and I will prove victorious in this battle, I will enjoy complete victory, and on my return from this war, the first thing I will meet on the road coming to my home, meaning the first animal, obviously, I will offer as a sacrifice to Hashem. But he said the first thing. He went to battle, and he enjoyed complete victory. The armies of Amal were completely rooted. They were destroyed completely. Yiftach returned joyously to his home with the people cheering him on. As he came towards his home, suddenly he was shocked, speechless, dismayed, and heartbroken. Because coming from the gate of his home to greet him was his only daughter, his only child. He recalled his vow to Hashem. The first thing, thing could be human or animal. To greet him would have to be offered as a sacrifice to Hashem. The sacrifice means that this item is slaughtered on the altar to Hashem. There's no way to go back on a vow. And so he began to scream in anguish, to cry. His daughter asked him the reason. And when she heard this, she said, there is no alternative. You must fulfill the vow. However, I request a period of two months' grace, two months' time in which I can go down to the mountains and there spend a quiet period of crying over my youth. Because she was not married, this means she would not be married, and the loss of a future life as a wife or mother. This Yiftach granted her. At the end of the two months, Yiftach fulfilled the wording in the Navi is he fulfilled his vow. And here we have a very interesting discussion in the Gemara as to what that means. Did Yiftach really take his daughter, a human being, and kill her? slaughter her, or did this mean something else? Second point is, this really wasn't that serious a problem, because a vow, though it cannot be rescinded under any conditions, there is still a means, according to Jewish law, of nullifying it. A person makes a neder, he can go to a chacham, to an important rabbi, and the rabbi has the power of hatoras nedorim nullify the vow as though it never been made before. At that time, there lived Pinchas, the grandson of Aaron Kohen. Pinchas was the chief rabbi of the Jews, the Kohen Godot. He was holy enough to be able to be matir neder, to remove his vow. So in that case, then, why all this crying? Why all this suffering when the solution was so simple? This the Zorah Kodesh discusses in detail, as does the Medrash Tanchumah, and the debate or the two potential results of this story stated are one, the fewer opinions state this. In other words, the, what is more positive, of course, is the second opinion. We'll take the lighter one first. 
that Yiftach told his daughter, I must fulfill the vow to slaughter you, to destroy you means that nothing can come of you in the future. Which means that by not being married ever, this will mean the vow has been fulfilled, completed. And so she stayed in isolation the rest of her life, and she mourned over the fact that she could never complete her life as a woman should. However, this is not what appears to be the true outcome of the story. According to the Zorah Kodesh, the Gemara, it seems that what actually happened was that these two months she requested for two months of his spotidus, she went to stay alone in the mountains. Spotidus means to isolate oneself, to daven to Hashem, to pour out one's heart to Hashem about one's problems, whether it's confessing the sins, purifying oneself, this she did for a period of two months' time to prepare herself for her ultimate end. In these two months, Yiftach did sacrifice her. He actually killed her. And this was the price he paid, the Gemara says, for a foolish vow. But it wasn't the foolish vow. It wasn't the vow that was as foolish as the, his neglect nullifying this. Here the Gemara tells us that there were two people, Yiftach, the ruler, let's say the king at that time, and Pinchas, the chief rabbi. All that was necessary to save this young girl was the meeting of these two. If they would get together, her life would be saved. Yet they did not get together. The request was made of Pinchas, remove the vow. Pinchas said, certainly, but in order to remove it, I have to have Yiftach in front of me. You can't do it by proxy. Let Yiftach come to me, state the vow, I'll remove it and he'll be free. I will not go to him. I will not lower my self-respect in going to Yiftach. He needs me. I don't need him. So Pinchas remained stubborn about this point. He refused to go to Yiftach, though Yiftach too refused to come to Pinchas. Yiftach claimed, I am king. No matter how high Pinchas HaKohen is, he still must obey the order of the king. I command him to come to me. So because of the stubbornness of these two, the Gemara says that a young, innocent girl lost her life. This did not go unpunished. The result was that Pinchas, who was a Kohen Gadol, who had the Vua, he was a prophet, for this he lost his power of prophecy. The spirit of Hashem departed from him. This was Pinchas's punishment. But Yiftach, the Pasuk says that he ruled over the Jews, for a period of six years. And then at the end of these six years, he passed away. Yiftach, from the city of Gilad, from the cities of Gilad, the Apostle says, was buried. He was buried in the cities of Gilad. Mimara asks, how do you bury a person in cities? There's only one grave you can bury a person in. The answer is that he was punished now for the death of his daughter. He traveled through these cities. He contacted leprosy. Leprosy means that the skin or the flesh shrivel up. And as he traveled, he lost an arm or an organ at each place that he went to. He was forced to bury it there. That in total, his body, his entire body, was buried in a large number of places. This was his punishment for failing to go to Pinchas to nullify the vow. We see, of course, what a folly it is to have the Mida of the Tzachon, stubbornness. Benedel says stubbornness 
can lead to the worst type of troubles, the, the loss of a person's honor about which he is stubborn. Here we find disgrace came to his name. A person who was so honored, so important in history, was disgraced because of his stubbornness. The most important Mida is a person who has a soft nature, one that is pliable, flexible, kind. But if a person has that type of nature, he would not have this stubbornness, but would submit when necessary, and as a result, there would always be peace. And so this was the case of Yiftach, who lost out ultimately. But prior to this incident, prior to his passing, that is, the, after he had enjoyed the victory over Ammon, while he still mourned the possible death of his daughter, he found himself faced with a second problem, a problem of civil war. Because he had called upon the Jews to join him in this battle, but he had omitted to call the competitive tribe of Ephraim. There was always competition between these two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, and he failed to summon the people of Ephraim to join him in battle. Now they were very incensed over this, infuriated. And they came to him with a claim, very angrily, why did you call us when you're going to battle against Amun? We are good fighters. We are much better fighters than your family of Gilad, the tribe of Manasseh. Yiftach told them, if I would have lost the war, then you could have a claim. But if you had come, we might have won it. As long as I proved victorious, which helped you out of this trouble too, why do you come to me with such claims and with such an attack? And at this point, the tribe of Ephraim insulted Yiftach, his family, the people of Gilad, so badly that this resulted in war. As in all cases of diplomacy, diplomats get together, one insults the other, and there's a declaration of war that follows. In this battle, Yiftach defeated the people of Ephraim soundly, and a, a new word was coined in this battle. Because the people of Ephraim tried to escape, there was a bridge between these two tribes over the Jordan, Mabros Hayardin was called, and as they tried to escape, they would claim that they were one of Yiftach's people, Manasseh. Yiftach would set up guards there who would say to them, give the password. They would say, there is no password. He would tell them, there is a password. Pronounce the word Shibolus. Shibolus means a stalk of wheat. But Shibolus has, the first letter is a shin. The people of Ephraim were like the Litvakas. Litvaks, who can't pronounce a shin. They say Kiddush, they say Yom so in this case, they asked him to say Shibolus. They would say Shibolus, of course, Shibolus. Thinking they pronounced it correctly. When they heard that Shin sounded pronounced as a Sin, which was a Sin to pronounce it that way, they quickly killed, they threw him over the bridge into the water, and that's how they killed the people of Ephraim. And that's why today you'll find, in many dictionaries too, you'll find the word Shibolus or Shibolus as a, another term used for a password. This was the final battle of Yiftoch. Again, he was victorious in this battle. In war, he made out very well. In peace is where he lost out. He lost his daughter. He lost his rights to 
a league with honor, and he was buried in the cities of Gilad. Following Yiftach's leadership, we come to the next leader was Aftson. The Navi is called Aftson. The Gemara says that Aftson is a nickname for Boaz. It was Boaz who married Rus. In the holiday of Shavuot, read the story of Rus, the convert, Rus, the daughter of the king of Moab, who married the son of Elimelech, story of Nomi. You're all acquainted with that story, the story of Shavuot, where Elimelech passed away. His wife, Naomi, left with her two sons, left Israel because there was a famine. They settled in the land of Moab. They married the two sisters, Rus and Arpa. After the famine was over, they returned to Israel. Now, the two sons who married the two daughters of the king of Moab both died. Nomi decided to return herself. And one of them, Arpa, one of her two daughters, stayed behind. Rus went with her. And when she came back, at that time, the leader of the Jews was Boaz, called Aftson too. His real name was Aftson, he was called Boaz because the word Boaz means he possessed strength, true strength, the greatest strength possible, the greatest gibor possible, is he who can overcome, vanquish his Yetzirah. Boaz was tested just as Yosef HaTzadik was tested. In fact, this test was even a more stringent one and he passed. That's why he was called Boaz. Here we find just these few sentences that Boaz had a family after his wife passed away, his first wife. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters. And then the Gemara says he decided to marry Rus when he saw her. So she was so modest. She possessed the Mida of Tznius, the extreme fine qualities. He decided to marry her in order to have children. The Gemara says, why was he so anxious to have children? Because his 30 sons and 30 daughters all passed away. And this shows that a person can never be sure of himself. No matter how many children he has, one can never know whether these children will prove of value. For passing away sometimes means that they turn to evil. A child that turns to evil is as no child. Legally, of course, mitzvah is there of having children. But the nachas is not bringing a person into the world who would serve Hashem has not been fulfilled. And therefore, the Torah says, the Gemara says, a person should never stop having children. Continue even when you are old, because you never know which child will turn out good. In this case, the Gemara says, the case of Boaz is 60 children. They passed away. He did not have a good child among them, but he had one child born from Rus, this one child proved to be so good, he was the grandfather, great-grandfather of King David. And here the Gemara uses a term that one is sometimes better than 60. One is better than 60 because one that lives and produces a fruit that is so precious as King David is certainly better than 60 who did not live, did not produce. There are some commentaries that Hananel interprets this differently. Boaz had a friend, his name was Manoach, and as he married off his children, it's customary to call to invite your friends to the wedding. In this case, he refused to invite Manoach to any one of the weddings, because he said, why should I invite him if I will not receive a reciprocating invitation? 
Noach's wife was barren. She had no children. So I could never get an invitation to his children's weddings. Why invite him then? Of course, this was done for a good reason. Inviting him means that he'd have to bring gifts. He wanted to spare the expense. He could never expect them back. But the Gemara says now that eventually, Boaz's 60 children passed away. And Manoach's wife did give birth eventually. She gave birth to one son that was stronger, better than all the 60 that was so weak that they died. This one son was Shimshon, Samson the Powerful, who was the next leader we'll discuss the ensuing lesson. And these are the two interpretations of the statement. One is better than 60. The case of Boaz, as we said, it was Zohar to have this one son from whom came forth Moshiach. So that we find that these two great tzaddikim, Yosef HaTzaddik, who passed the greatest possible test of purity with the wife of Potiphar, who tried to seduce him and he refused. The case of Boaz, who passed the same type of test, only a much stricter one, more difficult one, these two are Zohar, that from them came forth the two Moshiachs, Moshiach ben Yosef and Moshiach ben David. One who is Zohar to pass a test of this kind is Zohar to have children and generations that are pure. After Avtzon and Boaz, there were two more leaders, one was Elon and one Avadon. One served for ten years, the other for eight years, and then came again a period of suffering for the Jews. This time, the enemies of the Jews turned out to be the worst ones they'd ever experienced before. These were the Plishtim, the Philistines, who were so bad that the, their evil remains to this day. The word Palestine, the greatest insult to the land of Israel, originates from these people of Plishtim, Philistines. These Plishtim were so cruel from them came forth the most evil type of uh, wrongdoers, ones that would literally torture the Jews who were captured, and they would take pleasure in every type of physical harm to a Jew. Uh, the Jews suffered for so long, again, that they were forced to turn back to Hashem, this time to pray with all their hearts, despite the fact that they had experienced this so many times, it would seem that there must be a limit to the patience of Hashem, yet we find that Hashem himself is infinite, Hashem is everlasting and eternal, and so too is Hashem's kindness. Hashem, The kindness of Hashem are infinite. There is no such thing as reaching the end of Hashem's kindness and compassion. That when the Jews turned back to Hashem with sincerity, when the Tfilos rose up to the heavens, Hashem returned to them just as they returned to him, and he sent them a new leader who made very important history. This next leader is Shimshon Hagibor, which will require a full lesson next Monday with Hashem. Meanwhile, let's take a true, important moral of this part of history in that we should know there is no such thing as a Jew 
ever losing hope. Hashem is with us and will always be with us, with us collectively and individually, with us each Jew singly and with the entire Klan Yisrael. We have that strong emunah, the strong faith, the strong spirit will be zochem with our eyes to see the coming of Mashiach, be the base of Mikdash, Mehera, Amen, Amen.